If you would like to borrow a Bible this morning, will you raise your hand? Our ushers will bring you a Bible so you can follow along with where we're going this morning. And when you are we're done, you can just leave it in the pews. Just raise your hand. The ushers will bring you a Bible. I know it's kind of a bummer that our picnic is canceled today. We really had a great time last week. And so I know some of you are ready to get together again to encourage one another. So let me just... Let me just tell you, hey, if you made plans to go to the picnic, why don't you just grab someone next to you and go out to lunch, and maybe someone that you don't know, say, hey, you want to go to lunch, and hey, just make the most of the time, you'd be indoors, I think that will be a, a good idea. So please turn your Bibles to Matthew 13. We're going to the book of Matthew, and right now we are in Matthew 13. I know there's many of you who are just visiting for today. Uh, You've not been with us through all of Matthew. And for some of you who have been in and out over the summer, let me just kind of bring you up to speed where we're at. Jesus is in a string of uh, parables here. And parables are basically these short stories kind of about life that have some spiritual connection. But they function in two different ways. One of the ways they function, they give believers, those who have open hearts, more insight to the secrets of the kingdom, the reign of God in Christ. But the reverse effect is also true. They also keep those who have hard hearts in the dark. Uh, they almost have to keep them locked into judgment. It's a function of one in two ways. The believers more insight, those who have hard hearts, it hardens them further. And last week we saw the parable of the sower, which has basically talking about different responses to the gospel. Why do some people respond to Jesus and others do not? An explanation of that. And this week we're going to continue in the, the trend of parables, and we have the main parable is the parable of the weeds, and in between we have two mini parables. One is the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, and then we go into an explanation of the parable of the weeds explained. And what Jesus is, is getting at in this, this larger picture of parables, he's, he's trying to explain the kingdom to us. He's trying to talk to us about current kingdom conditions. What does it look like with the reign of God in Christ upon this earth? So current kingdom conditions. And specifically today in the parable of the weeds, he is going to explain how believers and unbelievers will coexist on this earth until the judgment. That's the reality. We will continue to live as believers among unbelievers together coexisting on this earth until judgment. Now, when Jesus is speaking about coexistence, as he will today, he's not talking about the religious pluralism of coexistence that we would be familiar with uh, from the popular bumper sticker. Let me put this up for you. Maybe you've seen this coexist uh, bumper sticker on a variety of cars. Perhaps you may have one on on your car. I'm not not sure. But the the overall image, let me just kind of just walk you through this image. You have the C, which is the the crescent of Islam, and then the peace symbol, and then the male and female symbol. Some even wonder if that's some scientific symbol of the E. And then you have the Jewish star, the the pagan or Wiccan symbol, the Chinese, yin and yang, maybe Taoism, and the cross. And perhaps the idea is that, you know, we need to exist together on this earth peacefully, even though we have different religions. Maybe the, this bumper sticker or this symbol is made because you know that on this earth, religions have caused a lot of war and a lot of fighting. 
Uh, this past week, a friend and I were, were attempting to en- engage this guy uh, with the gospel, and he said, I do not want to talk about religion because religion causes war. I don't even talk about religion with my wife, is what he said. He said, I don't talk about religion, I don't talk about politics, and I don't talk about money, but especially religion because it causes a lot of conflict. But I, I do wonder this idea of coexistence that most people in America would view this bumper sticker and most people would have the idea of the coexistence of religions in America by saying they are all pretty much the same and they're all going to end up in the same place. So why don't we just, in the meantime, get along? I mean, if they're all pretty much the same, there's there's one God or one supreme being, and we're all going to get up the mountain together and then find out there's just one God, then until then, let's have this this peaceful coexistence of tolerance because we're all going to the same place anyway. Now, I just want you to know, that's not what Jesus is getting at. That's not what he's talking about. He's going to talk about how believers and unbelievers will coexist. They're going to coexist until the time of judgment. And I'm hoping to get in your mind and your heart today that we can do better than the world's version of coexistence. And I believe that we can enter into a type of coexistence that is engaged. And hopefully we'll see a little bit of that throughout today. What does it look like to have an engaged coexistence as we live with unbelievers until the time of of judgment. So let's just jump on in rather than read the whole passage because it's pretty long today. We're just going to go verse by verse until we're done. So let's start off with the parable in verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men, his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven to a common occurrence at that time. It depicts an illegal activity. A man would go out to his field, he'd put out some good seed, but then his uh, enemy, maybe it was his neighbor who hated him, would come in at night and would sow in the field something called darnel. Darnel was a wheat-like weed, which means it was a, a weed that would grow up looking like wheat, but when it was the flowers and everything came out, you could tell that it was a weed, and the weed was poisonous and very dangerous and had damaging effects. Verse 27. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? So the, ner- the servants are like looking at the field. And they're seeing stuff grow up. They're like, that looks like a weed. That looks like darnel. That looks like a poisonous weed. And, and it's, it's this mixed growth all over the field. They, they see that the field has been compromised. And they want to know, Master, should we go out there and start to, to pull up all the weeds? And he's like, no, 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 don't do that. Because somehow the roots during this time are all intertwined. If you pull up the weeds, you're going to pull up the wheat. The master's like, now let's just wait until the full growth comes in. And then he says, 
Now, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the plan is wait until harvest time. At harvest time, it's going to be clear. Everything's going to be fully grown. We're going to take all the wheat. We're going to gather that. and We're going to put that to the barn. And then we'll take all the weeds and we're going to go and we're going to burn them. So there's a coexistence until then. But eventually there will be a separation. And a little bit, Jesus is going to give the interpretation only to his disciples, not to the crowd. But in between the parable and the interpretation, we have a little interlude here. We have a little couple mini parables and even a quote from the Old Testament. And I think these are very instructive as they talk about the small beginnings of the kingdom. Remember, Jesus is still talking about the reign of God in Christ. So let's leave that parable of the weeds alone for a bit and move into these mini parables starting in verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So the smallest uh, seed back in Palestine to them was the mustard seed. And you plant it, and when it grew, it grew into this big old bush-like tree that was about 8 to 10 feet tall. And the birds would even come and, and make their nests within its branches. Very simple thing to understand. The issue is, what is the connection to the spiritual? What is the connection to the kingdom and the kingdom growth? You see, the crowds at this time, they expected Jesus, or when the Messiah would come on the scene, to be this Messiah that would come in and immediately set up this grand reign, kick out the Romans, get them out of here, set up this this massive reign. But when they looked out and they saw Jesus, they said, this doesn't look like the prosperity we expected. In fact, to the crowd, Jesus seemed quite underwhelming. Jesus and his group of ragtag disciples seemed very unimpressive. They seemed very small. They seemed very insignificant, just like the mustard seed. But Jesus is teaching, you just wait. What they see right now, Jesus and his little small band of followers may have this mustard seed appearance, but there is going to be some significant growth that is going to happen of this grand expansion of the kingdom of God as his reign will continue to grow and grow and grow from this mustard seed to this great bush and this tree where many, many people will come under the reign of Christ, Jews and Gentiles both, and bow before the reign of Jesus. But, you know how it's going to happen? It's going to happen through a bloody crucifixion. It's not going to happen because he just shows up on the scene and says, okay, I'm going to kick out the Romans. I'm going to set up my earthly political kingdom. It is going to happen through a cross. And it was through the cross of Jesus, what they did not expect, it was through the cross of Jesus that men and women from nations around the world have repented of their sins and they're drawn to faith in Christ. And right now, we are seeing the reign of Christ grow and expand and grow. And one day when Jesus comes back at the fullness of the kingdom, we'll see the reign expand throughout the earth. 
It's coming. But a lot of times, it seems like it's a small beginning. And right now, until we are in the full reign of God and Christ upon this earth, the completion of the kingdom, we are in this coexistence time where the weeds and the wheat coexist together. And I don't know about you, but while I'm here on my short days on this earth, I want to have the biggest impact I can possibly have for Jesus. And, and most of you would agree, you do too. You want to have the, just whatever God wants to do in your life, you want to have this huge kingdom impact. But for the most part, when you start to examine your life, and I know when I examine my life, I am, I'm really un- underwhelmed. I'm not impressed by much of anything I see in my own life. It seems so small and so insignificant, and I was hoping uh, by the time I hit the age of 39 where I'm at, that I would be having such a grander and a larger kingdom impact. And maybe you were too, maybe you were hoping for, for, for bigger things. I was thinking about big things yesterday when uh, Manchester United, which is a soccer team, came in to play the Chicago Fire at, at Soldier Field. I don't know if any of you saw that game, but uh, Manchester won three to one after toying with the fire for a little bit, acting like they were going to let them win. But one of the, the most uh, popular players on Manchester, one of the most popular players, uh, soccer players in the world is Wayne Rooney. Uh, maybe you've seen him. He's so good. He even you know, just kind of just toyed with him yesterday and just kicked in a little dinky goal. It's very impressive. But he's one of the most popular players in the world. And I mean, the, the, the many people at Soldier Field, say, which sold out, by the way. I don't think the fire would, would just sell it out on their own. But it sold it out. And millions from around the world have been influenced by, by Rudy. And, and I was thinking to myself, what if he came to Jesus? Like, whoa. What if Rooney, instead of preaching soccer, started preaching Jesus? I thought, wow, that dude would have such a huge kingdom impact. And from time to time, God does that, right? He'll have people come to faith in Christ who will have this this huge impact. But for the most part, this is going to freak you out, but for the most part, God has decided he wants to use your uninventful and unimpressive life. It's like, God, why would you do it that way? <laughs> why don't you just get the popular people saved and they'll impact millions and we'll just speed this thing up? A little mustard seed doesn't seem very impressive. He's using our lives, the little unimpressive and uneventful ways that we love people, pray for people, share the gospel serve others it's not flashy it's not going to get attention it's a very unimpressive mustard seed but for whatever reason God in his sovereignty says yeah that's the way I'm going to grow I'm going to expand my kingdom and I'll bring it to the fullness at the return of my son and he's chosen to use us in our unimpressive ways to bring him glory so we have this coexistence we have it going on, and we're having impact, even though we don't feel like it at times. Look at the other parable, verse 33. Look, there's a really short one here. He told them another parable. Don't always think of parables as really long. Here's one sentence. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven 
that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, over the summer, uh, we have kids in here, so I'm going to put up this little picture just so the kids can have some involvement with the sermon. Um, so we have leaven. I have no idea why it's an ant and not a woman. <laughs> I don't get that. But hey, um, it's a girl ant. So take, take in the leaven, putting in the dough, and somehow the, the leaven mixes its way through the dough and it causes it to expand and grow. And what's interesting is that the, the amount that is put into the dough here could feed about 100 to 150 people in this measurements here, which is often the size of a small village. And I think what, what, what Jesus is getting at here, though seemingly small, God's reign in Christ kind of just mixes through the world and causes substantial kingdom growth. Part of one of the things we talked about here at Evanston Bible Fellowship, part of our ethos, we hear, if you're new to us, you hear a lot of us talking about our ethos. And part of our ethos is something called pervasive gospel. That is, we want the gospel to invade and pervade every area of our lives, inwardly and also outwardly. We want it to pervade every sphere of our lives. And, and, and one of the ways uh, we want to touch on different people that we come in contact with, it's similar to the idea of salt and light, where we want to live such a godly life among unbelievers that they will give glory to our Father in heaven. And one of the areas that most of you spend your time in, for those of you who are, 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 are not in school right now, but most of you, you spend your time at work. And you want to have a kingdom impact at work. You want to be this leaven working through the dough at work. And you're like, but I just work at a desk all day. Or I work as a cashier. And you're like, how can I have kingdom impact? Well, I shared something with you about a year ago, and I thought I'd share it with you again. It comes from John Piper, and it talks about some ways that we can impact others at our work, because that's where you spend most of your time. So let me just go through three ways that you can impact others and bring attention to Christ at your work. Number one, you can seek to do your work in such a way that Christ looks more important than your work. That's the idea of not making an idol out of your job. You can tell those at your job who have made an idol out of their work. You want to do your work with excellence, but you want to do it in such a way where your work is here and Christ is exalted here. You want to do it in such a way where Christ is exalted and looks more important in your work. Number two, seek to make and use money in such a way that Christ looks more important than money. For the most part, those that you work with will see what you're doing with your money. They will see if you're using it to, you know, for pure selfish ways or maybe you're using it to serve others. You're serving the poor. So you're taking mission trips or you're using it to help those who are suffering. They'll see the way that you are using the money that you make. Number three, seek to have relationships at work where Christ looks more important than those relationships. It doesn't mean that you're undervaluing the relationships you have at work. Actually, when you start to put Christ first, you will love people and you will serve people more where Christ will look more important in those relationships in the sense where you will honor him, you will exalt him, you'll make ethical decisions where Christ, for Christ, even when it's difficult. 
And, and I think as we coexist as, as wheat among weeds, as we coexist with, with unbelievers, a lot of the time we have with them will not be in a context where we can talk directly about the gospel. And so this light, this salt, or this leaven as it mixes through the dough, this, this leaven in our lives as it mixes through the world must have a kingdom impact in the way that we're living, in the way that we are focusing our attention and our heart, using our, our money for his glory so that Christ looks more important than our our work. It looks more important than other relationships we have, and it looks more important than ultimately our job. So we're thinking about leaven. We're thinking about the kingdom expanding. And now we got to this little bitty scriptural comment in verse 34. Look at verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth and parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. It's a quote from Psalm 78.2, and it's from Asaph, who was considered a prophet. Asaph was authorized by God to speak this revelation that was previously hidden. In the same way, Jesus spoke in a hidden and a veiled way to the crowd, but he was authorized by God to not keep it hidden, but reveal it to his disciples. And it's a simple quote here that kind of bridges the gap from the parable of the weeds that was just given to the crowd. The crowd did not receive the interpretation. And now we swing over to the interpretation of the weeds. Look at the interpretation Jesus gave his disciples. Verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went to the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Okay, let's stop there. Just pause for a moment. Let's start making the connections, connecting from the earthly to the spiritual. What's he saying here? Okay. The field is the world. It's not the church. Those of you who heard a popular interpretation, this is the church. Now he's talking about the world. So Jesus is the sower, but he's called the son of man here. Why is he called the son of man? Well, this is a reference back to the Old Testament, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where the son of man is the sovereign one with all authority and ability to rule this eternal kingdom. So we have the field, the world. The sower is the son of man. He sows the good seed, but in this context, the seed are, is, is the, if you see it there, the sons of the kingdom. It's believers. Now, the enemy, the one who committed the crime, the enemy is the one who came in, and it was, it's the devil. He's the, he's the enemy. And the weeds that he sow are his children, the sons of the evil one, unbelievers. So the harvest is the end of the age judgment, and the servants who reap are the angels. So we have the field... It's the world. Jesus is son of man, sowing believers, wheat. We have Satan sowing his children, the sons of the evil one, weeds. They're going to grow up together until the harvest, until it's complete. Then the angels are going to come, and they're going to participate in the judgment. Once again, simple parable to understand. It's about the coexistence of believers and non-believers until the judgment. And I'm sure that you have wondered from time to time, why does God not judge unbelievers right now? 
I mean, if he is bringing in his reign, let's just go ahead and wrap this thing up and just get going and let's go ahead and arrive at the fulfilling reign, the completeness. Why does he allow the unbelievers to still exist right now? You know, when we are out, uh, some people in this church, when we're out sharing the gospel with people who don't know Jesus or many of the students are on campus, they'll do something called um, one question. Like, if uh, they'll ask somebody, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? You ever thought about that before? If you could ask God one question, what would it be? Well, the, the, basically the number one response to that question goes something like this. People want to know why does God allow suffering? Why does God still allow evil? I mean, when, when we're out asking that question, people who don't know Jesus, I mean, it's almost like that's the, that's the number one asked question. Why, God, why do you still allow evil? Why do you still allow suffering? And, and that's a great question. And, and, and there are a variety of ways that you could answer that question. But I think one of the things that we need to stress to those that we love and care about who do not yet have a relationship with Jesus is, is by simply saying to them that God is patient. He hasn't brought in his full reign yet. He hasn't brought in his ultimate judgment yet. He is patient and he still wants people to repent and come into relationship with him. So rather than coming in, bringing in the full rain and just wiping out all the unbelievers, God's patience right now is seen because he wants people to repent. And, you, and I think we should stress to those we love, until the full judgment, there is going to be a window of mercy. There's this window of mercy where people can repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And until that window of mercy is closed, until the judgment, believers and unbelievers will coexist together until the judgment. And as you are in this state of coexistence with unbelievers, I, I really think that you can do one of two things. The Bible calls us to be distinctively engaged. We need to be distinct, and yet we need to be engaged. But one of the temptations that we will face as Christians is that we want, we'll want to pull away. We'll want to be so distinct from the weeds that we'll want to pull away. Because there's a lot of crazy things in this world. There's a lot of simple things in this world. It seems like it's very interesting how the world can quickly corrupt even good things. For, for example, I grew up, uh, born in 71, grew up in the 80s. I, uh, as I was late 70s, early 80s, I don't remember exactly when, but I used to watch the Smurfs. All right? Anybody with me? No, you don't want to admit that. But I used to watch Smurfs. Now, you think, there, there's nothing wrong with blue people. There's nothing wrong with them. They're cute. It's a very engaging story. But as I saw recently that the Smurfs were coming out with a movie to basically reintroduce the Smurfs to my kids, the next generation, I, I, was, I was watching and I was, I was very disturbed because the music they were playing while the movie was being previewed was from the 80s rapper Tone Loke. You don't know who he is, do you? You don't listen to that music. Well, in case you listen to that music, you know what I'm talking about. Very inappropriate song. Not talking about good things, let me just tell you. And that's being played over the Smurfing. And I'm thinking, why are you doing that? 
And I saw the Smurfs advertise on the bus. And, and there's a phrase, the way the Smurfs are being advertised, where it's like a, a, a dirty word. And I think, well, why would you take something so cute and corrupt it? And, and what happens as believers, we're thinking, forget the world. We're going to go over here and we're going to, we're going to be this distinctively, in, and we're going to be so distinct over here, we're going to create Christian Smurfs. You know, we have Christian Smurfs over here. We want to have everything Christian. We want to just be separate from all the worldliness. And that's going to be a constant temptation for you as you'll be faced with all the corruption in the world that you see all the, you see all the weeds that you want to pull back. But another thing, another error I think that you can make that is equally as bad, rather than wanting to create your own little wheat field of everything Christian, is that you'll want to go out and you think that you're going to be evangelizing the world, but what happens is that the world starts to evangelize you. And before long, you're no longer distinct, but now you're all in with with the world and you accept everything. You buy into everything. And what Jesus has been consistently teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, in the book of Matthew, is that we need to be a distinct people and yet an engaged people. Talk about a fine line right there. Distinct in holiness, and yet engaging the world with the gospel. You're thinking, well, what does that look like? Well, read the Sermon on the Mount again, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Distinct, and yet engaged. And that's much better than the coexistence offered by the world. Where it's like, let's just all get along until we all end up in the same place. No, 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 no. We're saying, no, look. We're going to be distinct. We're going to be a whole people, but we're going to engage you with the gospel. Jesus continues. Uh, You might not like this part here. This is Jesus speaking. This is not Jason. This is Jesus. Look what it says in verse 40 and 42. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's Jesus talking. It's Jesus. That's not me. That's Jesus. He's talking about hell, and he talks about it a lot. And he's saying, you know, the weeds may appear to be growing just fine. They may run errands to CVS and to Whole Foods, and to Sam's Club, and they may go to work, and they may have families, they may swim in the lake, and they must, and and they go to bed at night. But unless they repent and trust in Christ to forgive them of their sins, Jesus is very clear, they will face a fiery judgment. And it's very ironic that it's the angels taking place in the judgment, the angels that are often depicted as these cute little figurines in, in your home. No, they're going to take part in judgment, in, in, in the fiery judgment. So these angels are going to gather the weeds, all, it says, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Then those will be gathered and they're going to be thrown into this fiery furnace of God's judgment. And this place will be one of great weeping, and it says gnashing of teeth from all the pain and all the suffering, and this is the reality of hell. Hell 
It is a literal place of judgment. I was talking to someone recently. I said, what's hell to you? He said, hell is hell on this earth. And yet, we face a lot of hell on this earth and a lot of suffering, but there is a literal place of suffering called hell. Now, let's try to understand what's going on here. Let's try to understand hell a bit. This past week, this is, this is crazy. Uh, I was talking to this woman about Jesus. Uh, a friend and I were asking her a question. I, I, this, is, this is classic, okay? It's, it's going to go down. I, can't, I don't need to forget this. So I was talking to her about Jesus, and my friend and I, we asked her, what is the central message of the Bible? And she said, oh, I got this one. She said, when I, between the ages of 5 and 10 years old, I had a Baptist babysitter. And my Baptist babysitter said, because your mom smokes, she's going to hell. And because you listen to Boy George, you're going to hell. Now, if you don't know who Boy George is, you can ask your parents. But before we continue to engage with this woman, we had to stop and we said, do you still like Boy George? And of course, she said no. But isn't it interesting that she thinks the central message of the Bible is that because her mom smokes and she likes Boy George, they're going to hell. That's the central message of the Bible? Are you serious? But a lot of our unbelieving friends and family members think that's the central message of the Bible. You are going to hell. Have a good day. How did that happen? What's, what, is that the central message? And yet, the gospel, as we know, is God's rescue mission of love. Clearly, God was compelled and moved out of love. He sent his son, Jesus, into the world so that humans don't have to perish and go to hell. He, he sent his son, Jesus, to live this, this perfect life that we couldn't live, died on the cross in our place, was buried, rose again. And the message, you repent of your sins, put your faith in Christ. God's wrath is turned away from you. You can be welcomed into joy. You can be welcomed into forgiveness. You can have a relationship of joy with God. That is the greatest message ever. You don't have to go to hell. You can be forgiven. You can know God. There can be great joy. And yes, hell is still part of the message. Because if you reject Jesus, if you reject God's offer of love to reconcile you to him, you will spend forever separated from his holiness in a place called hell. But as Christians, it's part of our message to talk about hell but we, we don't talk about hell and just lift up hell all the time so where they go away and think of the central message of the Bible is you're going to hell. No, the central message of the Bible is Jesus. And yes, if you don't repent, you don't believe him, you will go to hell. So let's, let's exalt and lift up Jesus. And it's kind of ironic. I know we're not going to do it today, but we're talking about hell and then we were going to go have this nice cordial picnic. It's like, man, it's like, is there some disconnect in our life? Like, like really? We're going to talk about hell, and then we're going to go have a picnic. It's like, is that, should we feel guilty about having the picnic? 
does Jesus try to ruin our picnic? <laughs> I mean, what, 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 what should we think about that? But it's always going to be, that's always going to be the reality in our world. There is going to be weeds and wheat together. And, uh, and part of us, we want to think, well, let's just put that out of our minds so we can enjoy ourselves. Let's just, let's just not think about that. Let's, take, let's just lop off those verses that talk about hell. But I think, I think the reality of hell can do two, two things for us. One, it can make us have a supreme amount of joy in the gospel, right? Praise God. He rescued us from his wrath by sending his son so we are not going to spend forever in hell. This is a good thing. We can have joy. So we, can, we don't need to ignore hell. We need to praise God that the wrath of God was satisfied in Jesus. We can rejoice, right? So it should give us joy. But at the same time, hell should make us urgent and should give us a sense of urgency because people we love, people we care about, they really are going to hell. I was reading a book this week by Francis Chan. Let me put this up for you. It's a book called Erasing Hell. It's a response to Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. <laughs> but you can get this one. It's a good one. Erasing Hell. In this book... Uh, I'm going to put up a quote here from Chan as he's talking about the reality of hell. Put this quote up for you. He says, We shouldn't go on with life as usual. A sense of urgency over the reality of hell should recharge our passion for the gospel as it did for Paul, who, knowing the fear of the Lord, persuaded people to believe. Now, I know we want to put out of our minds this reality of hell as we coexist with people who right now are going there. But rather than forgetting about it, it's okay, let's just forget about that. Let's just go to another church that doesn't talk about hell. Let's read other books that don't talk about hell. Let's cut out the verses where Jesus talks about hell. Rather than doing all that, we should fear the Lord and say, okay, knowing the fear of the Lord, I am going to persuade men and women with the gospel. I'm going to rejoice in my salvation, but I'm going to persuade men and women. I'm not going to do the worldly version of coexistence where I'm nice to my neighbors and say, have a great day. When the reality is, if they have not repented and trusted in Christ, we're not going in the same place. And Jesus is very clear that the weeds we gathered and burned in the fiery furnace, a literal suffering of hell. I do not want to put that on my mind. As much as I want to, I will not put that out of my mind. Do not put that out of your mind. There's also a glorious future for the weak, for believers. Last verse, verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. One day in your resurrected body, you're going to shine like the sun in God's kingdom. There's going to be this complete vindication. Maybe you've been persecuted. Maybe you've been discouraged. There's going to be this complete vindication that we trusted in Christ. We are going to shine like the sun because of the work of the Son, Jesus Christ. It's going to be a glorious time. But until then, you'll go out of here and you will coexist with unbelievers. And as you interact with the world, I want you to encourage them in their version of coexistence as much as you can. I don't want you to be the kind of person that says, your version of coexistence is just stupid because war is good. I mean, don't, don't be like that. 
Say, yeah, I, we understand why you want to have this version of coexistence because there's been so many wars on religion. There's been so much conflict over religion. We, we understand that. But I also want to tell you that there is something that is true and that is not true. It is not true that we're all going to end up in the same place together. We are going to exist as different religions, but it is going to end in a judgment and we want to give them the gospel. We want to speak the truth. And let me just tell you, do not be one who stays in here and, and affirms doctrine of the hell that is awaiting unbelievers. You affirm that mentally, but functionally, you could have a coexist sticker on your car. Functionally. Because functionally, your everyday life is like, okay, I don't believe we're all the same, but I'm going to act like we're all the same because I'm never going to engage. We must engage people because we love them. We must engage them with our words and with our actions, with the gospel of Jesus. Because we will continue to coexist until the judgment. And until then, we've got to engage. Let's pray. Lord, it just does not seem like it would be loving to participate in a version of coexistence that left off your truth, that left off the reality of what happens next. We rejoice in the gospel, and we rejoice that you've made us ambassadors to take your truth to those who do not know you. We do not want to approach them with arrogance or with pride, but with brokenness and humility, out of love, and share the greatest gift of your love for us, the greatest message the world has ever known, that you have come on a rescue mission of love through your son Jesus and through his life and death, victory over sin, Satan, and death, and his resurrection. We want to rejoice that we can repent and be forgiven and proclaim it to others that they can have a joyous relationship with the Father. So, Lord, I just ask that you would use us this week at our jobs, use us this week at our families, to see that we all have a part to play. We may be unimpressed with our lives, but, God, you are doing work by your powerful Holy Spirit in us to bring the gospel to bear on our lives, our families, and our world. And so we ask to be used this week. In Jesus' name, amen.